Geraldine Jameson on Manx Radio. Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's programme. Now, we've all heard of the very sad news of the death of one of Britain's best-known entertainers, Bob Monkhouse, OBE. Well, back in the 80s, I caught up with Bob at the Palace Hotel and began by warmly welcoming him to the Isle of Man. Geraldine, thank you very much indeed. Suffice to say, Manx Radio and Geraldine. I mean, that tells everything on this island. <laughs> means good quality listening. Good, super. Well, Bob, I was about to say there that you've really done it all. Uh, people with long memories. <laughs> <laughs> Bob was just having a nice little uh, long <laughs> glass of water there. People with wide imaginations when you say I've done it all. <laughs> well, I'll leave the jokes to your good self. But uh, to carry on with my little uh, prepared script here, um, people with memories will remember you, of course, as a scriptwriter with Dennis Goodwin, very famous scriptwriter in the 50s. We'd, yes, that's right. We, Dennis and I start. we were at Dulwich College together, but there was a year's difference in our ages, and you know what a gulf that is when you're teenagers, so we didn't know one another. I, I went into the RAF in 1946, National Service, uh, when most of the fellows were sort of uh, demob happy. I was conscript miserable, and very quickly got myself a booking uh, in, in London, a switch to the RAF establishment for medical, central medical establishment in London, and got myself an audition at the BBC. Uh, I was secretary to a neuropsychiatrist in the RAF, and he was an important man, group captain, and I had to type all his letters, two-fingered, and give them to him to sign just before he went off for lunch every day. I slipped one in, because he never read the letters. Uh, I slipped one in to the BBC saying, I have this Corporal Monkhouse who has this uh, pa pathological desire to be a performer, and I fear for his sanity if he's not given an audition. <laughs> I got myself an audition at the BBC. I was very fortunate in that I was auditioned not by the man who'd been doing it for the previous 20 years, and marking everybody with five out of a hundred or six out of a hundred. I am to get a guy who was actually going round the twist. He was a producer who had been overworked in uh, the BFBS, British Forces Broadcasting, out in Cologne. He'd come to the BBC to work there as a producer. They'd seen he was a bit doolally and given him what they thought was a fairly easy job, replacing the regular guy who did the auditions, who was sick that day. He only heard two artists, myself and a fellow called uh, uh, Neville Williams, who changed his name later to Gary Miller and became a very successful singer, died very young. Uh, he only heard him and me. Then he collapsed. He gave us both 100% out of 100, wrote wow next to my name, so I became a working comedian at the age of 18. As soon as I'd gone on Variety Bandbox, which was the big radio show in those days, you, you could become a star overnight, Geraldine, on Variety Bandbox on a Sunday night back in 1940, 47, 48. Uh, Dennis Goodwin heard me on the radio. He wasn't in the forces, he had flat feet. He was selling radios at a store called Gamages in London. and by phoning around the RAF and phoning the uh, AMU and all the various units, he managed to locate me. Came to see me at that office in just off Oxford Street, said, I'm the Goodwin who's at uh, Dulwich with you. I think I'm funny. I think you're funny. Let's do something funny together. And we, we wrote our first script that evening, and we sold it to a fellow called Bonacolino. He was an American living in Britain. Or was he Canadian? He always played Americans in the movies. And he had a radio show. So we got to write the Bonacolino radio show, 
and another one for a comedian called Derek Roy, Derek, Dr. Roy, the melody boy. Hello, patients. Uh, alas, <laughs> uh, Derek's no longer with us. But uh, that's how we started, and we wrote all the way through the 50s. We were the, the Tesco's of script writing, Dennis and I. We piled it high and sold it cheap. Muir and Norton were the Fortnum and Masons. <laughs> they, they did quality work and a lot less of it. And Galton and Simpson, of course, were busy with Hancock. But we were the th that's the three teams who did most of the work through the 50s. And Dennis and I worked as a, as a partnership and as a team right the way through to 1961, when he finally succumbed, as I was reluctant to do, to Bob Hope's continual uh, invitations for us to go out and work for him on the West Coast. Did you actually write scripts for Bob Hope? Yes, from 1953 onwards, we were Hope's official British writers. Whenever he came to Britain or to Europe, which he did very frequently in those days because of the number of American forces stationed here, we anglicised his stuff and rewrote it and gave him topicals that he could do for the British public at the Palladium, the Prince of Wales, and wherever else he happened to be appearing. And that was a tremendous education, working for a man with his huge comedy talent. I've heard you likened professionally to Britain's answer to Bob Hope. Well, a pretty rude answer, isn't it, really? But I'm, I'm, very, I'm very proud to be compared with him, Geraldine. I mean, Bob Hope, I interviewed him on my show uh, on BBC Two. It was repeated uh, in the summer on BBC One. Uh, he's 80, and the only difference between Bob Hope at 80 and Bob Hope at 60 is he's about two inches shorter. Otherwise, you can't detect any difference in his complexion, his step, and the speed of his mind. That he's quick fire wit. Astonishing speed. Very mm. quick. Mm. Lovely. Lovely to see. He's yeah. a genuine ad-libber. People have always made jokes about Bob Hope's numerous writers, and in fact, he does have a very large team of contributing writers because he has to turn out a tremendous number of performances, speeches, acceptance speeches for awards, and he's on radio, on television, continually doing specials. Uh, but in an ad-lib situation, I've never known anyone better than, than Hope, except possibly Ted Ray, when he was really on form. But he obviously lives and breathes it, Bob. You know, I mean, this makes him tick. Absolutely. It charges him up. Yes, it's the it, only thing he wants to do. Is it the same for you? Yes. Uh, it's the only thing I ever wanted to do when I was a child, and I've never changed my mind. And I, I can see this. It's funny that you say that, because in making the flattering comparison with Bob Hope, I can see a very clear parallel there. Bob is still motivated by exactly the same forces that worked on him when he was in his teens. He still goes out there thinking that he's the 22-year-old fellow who's got to make it. Uh, he'll still work that audience as hard as he can, and you can sense his inner dismay if a line misfires and how he'll recover from it with his skill. But when you look at him, I've, I've got some film of Bob Hope in 1934, when he, he very, made his very first attempts at filming in 1934, and it's still the same walk, the same expression, and you can still feel the same eagerness to score. Well, Bob Hope, of course, would not have fluffed any of your lines that uh, you wrote right, for him. Right. But what about the frustration of other less salubrious <laughs> and less professional <laughs> people? Did, was that a bit hard, a bit tough on the two of you? It used to be very frustrating. In fact, that really, that's what made me drift more and more towards becoming a performer. Dennis and I worked as a double act on radio. Dennis didn't work well visually, so uh, um, he looked awkward on the screen, so he wasn't so successful on television. But we used to do a, a very fast double act on radio, and then we both worked as patter comedians separately. And part of the reason for that was we were writing so much good stuff that the comedians of the day didn't like, because they couldn't see, the jokes weren't clear or obvious enough for them, or weren't in the musical tradition, or weren't in whatever tradition they were brought up in. Well, we were very influenced by transatlantic comedy, the, the, the humor of Groucho Marx, of Jack Benny, Red Skelton, we were, uh, and Fred Allen. So we were writing jokes which were rather more obscure. Now, you, co you couldn't give a joke to Jimmy Wheeler uh, for when we were writing for Jimmy, uh, like um, 
the one about the whirling dervish who slept in a lathe. It was a lathe. You couldn't say uh, <laughs> this girl was in charge of a sex club examining prospective members because you'd say, what does prospective mean? <laughs> See, so you, you <laughs> any of those jokes, that's a bit like a saucy one. We that ourselves. <laughs> but any of those jokes, you kept them back. We, and we used them. We put them in our act because we found we could get a laugh with them. <laughs> and we particularly like the, the visual image, you know, the fellow who rushes into a restaurant in Hong Kong and says, I, I can't stay long. I've left my rickshaw outside with the coolie running. But <laughs> <laughs> we love those lines and we couldn't get anyone else to use them. So we, that's one of the reasons I became a, a patterman. I, I loved doing my own material. Yeah. Well, perhaps jumping a little bit here, out of context, I suppose, but you've become latterly a chat show host or yes. a talk show presenter, as the Americans were termed. And you'll be uh, maybe. Uh, glad to know, like of course thousands of others, I have been a devotee of these chat shows, particularly your chat shows, and and watched all the repeats. I must say, I've always watched them when I've been in bed, whatever that oh, means. Uh -huh. You know, <laughs> a dangerous know. statement to make to Bob Monkhouse, <laughs> but perfectly true. Now it must have been super to welcome back onto your chat show guests, of course, that uh, you've known so well from those early days. Oh, absolutely, a joy. That was a labour of love. It was also an on-the-job learning program because I I had never interviewed before which you do so skillfully, and it is an art to listen to people and to, to pick up on what they're saying and to guide them to the next subject. Um, so it, I, it was really a, a task which I acquired the rules of as I went along. The joys to me, is especially, were welcoming young performers to their first chance to appear on TV and advising them how to, to put their material, to uh, put the strong stuff at the at the end and open up with a good one and put the other stuff in the middle. But also meeting the stars that I admired so much, like Sid Caesar, who I absolutely worshipped through the years and had never met before. Uh, he was just about the most influential and the most brilliant comedian on American TV in the 50s. Alice Fay, who I had adored from 1937 through 1943 when she stopped making movies and longed, I never thought the day would come when I would dance with Alice Fay and sing a duet with her. Dennis Norton had her Alice Fay on his Looks Familiar program and he, he said as he took Alice Fay in his arms, because he too wanted to dance with her, and the audience, because they haven't got a band on that show, hummed You'll Never Know. Ah. And he said he, he felt the most extraordinary rubbing sensation on the back of his neck, and he realized it was the blue surge of his RAF battle dress that he could still feel from 1942 <laughs> when, he, when she'd sung You'll Never Know in some cinema in the forces. It, those stars in particular, the ones who are legendary, of course it was a tremendous thrill for me to meet them. I, I was ashamed to take the money. But you're, you're a legendary name yourself, Bob. So do you think it was a slight risk, actually, becoming a chat show presenter? Because they're not really looked at or looked upon in, in great favor. I mean, I've just finished reading uh, Dirk Bogard's memoirs, and he states categorically in them that he absolutely detests chat shows of every description and interviews, especially the ones that are supposed to be in-depth. So I'd advise you not to ask him on your show. <laughs> you know? right. but, no, I do know. You know. He's a very sensitive, shy man, and I know he hates revealing anything about himself. And there are quite a number of stars like that. Fred Astaire is another who simply eschew all talk shows and can only be pressured into doing them uh, if there's something to promote. I think mainly uh, when Dirk Bogard was talking about the talk shows that he hates, he was talking about the American ones, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin, which are pretty uh, hard to take sometimes. 
Parkinson, I, I, I think, got a great reputation during his 12-year run. Wogan, I think, is now doing marvellously on Saturday nights for BBC One. I don't put myself any, class myself anywhere near that category. First of all, I'm not investigative. I'm not asking questions about what do you think about Vietnam. I'm <laughs> trying to get you from joke to joke. You're uh, entertaining, basically. Basically, I, I, my, the interviews were structured so that I could get the uh, whoever I was interviewing into their best material. And as soon as they'd finished a gag, I would move them on to the next one. So really what we were doing was using the chat show format in order to do a, a comedy program. Uh, with a little musical break in it. And we'll do that again, starting in the new year, another 10 shows, but I aim to make it a little more, a little looser, a little warmer uh, than the show that we did, which looked very glamorous, but I felt had a certain stilted quality at times, which I'd like to lose. I'm loosening up a bit with my BBC contract. Currently going out on Saturday nights is a show called Bob's Full House, based on bingo, and I'm having tremendous fun with that, because it's, although it's a game show, I don't look down on game shows. I look up to the Lord and say, thank you for a pension. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, no one can be more adept at game shows than yourself. I enjoy them. I really love doing them. You came, you came into my life, of course, my personal life, with the golden shot. Oh, yes, of I course, Sunday afternoon. That was a sort of religious... Uh, my parents used to drag me to church on Sunday morning, but, you know, to me, religion was the golden shot in the <laughs> afternoon, <laughs> actually. Well, oh, my goodness. <laughs> it was for me, too. Yeah. Seven years, every week in, week out, live on that thing. You know what killed it? Well, the basic concept of the show, just to remind our listeners, who might not remember it as well as you do, was that it was one great idea, but it had to be live. The great idea, which a fellow called Werner Schmidt had come up with in, in Switzerland, was that a viewer should be able to compete in the show from his or her home by picking up a telephone, looking at the live transmitted picture and saying right a bit stop, left a bit stop, fire, and affect events in a studio miles away by guiding the crossbow onto the apple and exploding it and qualifying to come to the studio and play on. Well, that was a good idea, the fact that uh, viewers at home could play. But, of course, it, the fact that it had to be live made it a prime target for the IRA. And during our last series, all they had to do was phone the studios in Birmingham and say, there's a bomb in your studio. And we had to say to the audience, do you want to stay or do you want to go? There never was a bomb in the studio. But, of course, it, it killed that show and it killed Sunday Night at the Palladium, which was the other live variety show. Because that phone call was all it took. Nobody had to spend a penny on Jellignite. Mm. So that was the end of the golden shot. But it's nice to have you remember it. Well, if you'd drawn breath, actually, when you said, you know what killed it, I would have jumped in and said, other presenters. And, and I really do, do, <laughs> do, I really do mean this. No, 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 I really do mean it, you know, in all honesty. Because if, if you take the golden shot, and if you take more recently Family Fortunes, now, I mean, I have nothing against Max Bygraves in, in his own sort of Not physically, show no. match. No, 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 no. And, uh, you know, but, but other people, Charlie Williams, Williams and so on, who, who, who followed after you on the Golden Shot, they just didn't have that same magic. Now, what do you attribute this special kind of talent to? I think there, there are several factors at work here, Geraldine. First of all, there's the extraordinary quality of loyalty in, in the British public, of loyalty to an idea, to a concept. They, once you've given them something they like and repeated it, and you have repelled all people who don't like it, because you've been running the series long enough. Generation Game is another example, where nobody watched the Generation Game unless they liked Bruce Forsyth. I mean, by that time, he'd repelled all hostile borders. You knew where he lived. You didn't tune in at that time if you didn't like him. Uh, so replacing him with Larry Grayson, while it was a bold move, which was partially successful, nevertheless, after a while, people said, no, it's not the same. I think the same thing is true of Golden Shot, but I think, in a way, since the comparisons have to be made, in a way, I was rather fortunate. There are several people I could have suggested to replace me on Shot, and indeed on Family Fortunes, where there would have been a seamless interchange. Um, 
people would have noticed the difference. They would have resisted it at first because the public definitely doesn't like a change in a favourite programme. But I think it might have worked better. But I think in each of those cases, Norman Vaughan, who's a dear friend, uh, Charlie Williams, who's one of the warmest and most lovable personalities in cabaret, but who is not a natural ad-libber, and uh, Max Bygraves, who actually hadn't looked at the show and didn't know what it entailed, didn't realize how complicated it was, and is, has spent all his years as a great entertainer communicating directly with an audience with the sole purpose in mind of amusing them from joke to joke, from song to song, suddenly is cluttered with 10 contestants and a load of rules and information coming in from seven different sources <laughs> trying to run the show. It was very difficult for him. Um, it's possible to criticize Max and say, well, he should have looked at it. But, uh, Max himself said, I didn't realize it was going to be quite such a big job. And um, so, in a way, I, I've been replaced by people who um, made the comparison for me favourable, and I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> I'm sure you have very happy memories of family fortunes, and I often wondered how long you spent, if at all for that matter, with the family contestants beforehand, because it must have been a nightmare, surely, when you got down, even though they had these badges on their lapel saying Marjorie and Peggy and so on, um, you know, and you can then you say, oh, it, this is the granny, you know, and this is the aunt, and, and she's the brother-in-law of the sister, and then, and, oh, we've got, you know, mind-boggling in the end. <laughs> were there some worst moments, you know, of mistakes? Well, yeah, uh, yes, there were. Um, I'm gifted, fortunately, with a quick... Um use and wipe memory. I can scribble all over my brain and remember the, everything I need to know that evening and then wipe it clean the next day. I can't remember anything that I had to So otherwise you'd go crazy because if you had an eidetic memory that went on collecting material you'd just, I guess you'd get a brain full of rubbish and explode. The difficulty with that show was that we were making three a night for three nights of the week. That's nine shows in three evenings. So you're dealing there with an awful lot of people, 90 different contestants, plus the standbys, because you always had to have standby. The family of five would arrive with a standby. Sounds like an aircraft in yes, does, situation. It? Yeah. In fact, I wanted to publish a book called Spot the Standby, uh, <laughs> because we always presented them, if you remember, with a photograph of the two families standing there. It, we, always we presented the losing family. Here's a photograph to remind you of being here. A photograph to remind you of the, the night you had a punch-up afterwards <laughs> because you'd let one another down. <laughs> and uh, we present with this picture. Well, of course, we took the picture in the afternoon so we could develop it by the time we came to the programme recording in the evening. And the standby, who had to be there, a member of the family, in case somebody fainted, somebody was sick, somebody reneged on the going through with it, uh, would also be in the picture. But, of course, if you're trying to get five intelligent members of a family and you've got a bright mum, a clever dad, an intelligent daughter, a son who knows his own name, and you're running out already, you've got daft Uncle Ernie now in the team, the one, <laughs> the one who gets drunk at weddings and gropes the bridesmaids. And the one on the end. And the one on the end, the standby, who's going to be desperate. So usually the standby was slightly tilted with punk hair, um, carrying a, a, a plastic shopping bag full of souvenir books to get signed while he was at the studios because he thought he was going to meet the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> but actually memorising all those names and the details, I never found that difficult. And certainly there were the aides, of course, they're all over the place, the aides, like, as you mentioned, the badges. So I also had all the scores being marked up on cards all the time within my line of vision so that I could look straight at a contestant but look over the shoulder to see what information I needed. All those assistances that um, any game show host requires, you, you get that paraphernalia organised during the, the very first run-throughs. Uh, we, we had a few awkward moments on that show, but most of them were due to curious surveys um, which would suddenly elicit very angry letters. For example, we did ask a hundred people, name a word that begins with the letter Z, uh, and the, the top answer was zoo, 
and the next answer was uh, zebra, and the next answer was xylophone. So we had to put it up there because we, that's what we got in the survey. So you put up xylophones, which of course is spelled with an X, folks, and uh, nobody gets it, and so make furious mail. We also had named the most popular surname in the British Isles. Number one, of course, was Smith. Number two, of course, was Jones. Number three was Patel. Well, that's baffling to the Isle of Man. It's only got maybe one Patel running an Indian restaurant in Walton Avenue, or, so, or whatever. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, no offence to anybody to attribute the name Patel if that is not a regional name that suits any Asian gentleman who or lady who happens to be listening. But that's a shaker. So eventually we had to screen those surveys so that we didn't give uh, results on the board that were baffling to the, to the viewers. So we, no matter how interesting it was, we had to uh, avoid all that. I've just discovered, actually, that uh, Max Bygraves should really have my entire sympathy, I think. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> what you have done for me, of course, in uh, watching you and chatting to you, you've jerked my failing memory a wee bit further. And I remember, of course, you were in the Carry On films, weren't you, Bob? The very first one only. Uh, that was 1957, I think. Uh, it was based on a play by R.F. Delderfield, and it had the best plot of any carry-on. In fact, I think it was the best made carry-on until they did uh, carry-on up the Khyber, which is undoubtedly the outstanding carry-on film. So uh, they cast me in it instead of John Fraser, because I was going to be cheaper. John Fraser, who was a very good-looking young actor, and I imagine still a very good-looking middle-aged actor now, you see less of him. Um, uh, he played Lord Alfred Douglas in one of the films about Oscar Wilde. He was an extremely beautiful young man. And somebody had to be the young conscriptee who was called up on his wedding day. He'd been married to Shirley Eaton and then was whisked away into the services. And uh, he wanted 1,500 quid, and I settled for 12 for the five weeks filming. And when I played it, and the film turned out to be a sleeper, a stunning success. It was the second biggest moneymaker of 1958 in this country, just as I mean, everyone was bowled over. It only cost 70 grand to make, and it took a quarter of a million in its first five weeks. So everyone went bananas, and they said, we've got to do more carry-ons. But I twigged that quite a number of people were phoning me under the impression that if it was a success, I might have been one of the reasons that it was a success, because William Hartnell and I shared top billing. Everyone knew William Hartnell didn't sell tickets, so they figured maybe it was Monkhouse. It wasn't, of course. I mean, all right, the presence of a, a fairly novel television name, as I was at that time, would have some appeal. But the fact was that it was word of mouth. The, the film just happened to hit a, a nerve about remembering being in the forces and made a fortune. So I thought, no, I'm not going to go on getting 1,200 quid a week from uh, a, a picture, rather, from Peter Rogers, who's a very stingy producer. <laughs> uh, I will go elsewhere. So I was offered, Bertie Ostra said, no, you come to me and I'll pay you 3,000 for a movie. And, and I made Dentist in the Chair and Dentist on the Job and a whole series of, of weird, I mean, terrible movies. They're all black and white British movies made for under £100,000, which were basically constructed of 82 rather old jokes, most of them rude. But they've all made money. In those days, I think, actually, any film made money. Uh, the one I liked the best has vanished. It was called Weekend with Lulu, and it was me and Leslie Phillips driving an ice cream van all over France, and I've looked in every film listing and every television uh, release listing ever since. It's, it didn't do well in this country, but it made an awful lot of money in America, and I can't find it. <laughs> and if you ever happen to see Weekend with Lulu coming up, do have a look and do give me a phone call first, Gerald. I certainly I will, but I think the... I'm sure I, if you can't discover it, I certainly won't. You are a film buff yourself. Yes. Though. You've got one of the largest collections in the land. That's right, particularly of silent comedy mm. uh, and silent movies and dramas as well. In fact, I try to have one representative film for each sort of... one seminal film for each watershed in filmmaking. Uh, 
I, for example, every, in everybody's top ten, you have to have Citizen Kane. Uh, but of course, the advent of video has made it very much easier to have a collection of such films without taking up the the enormous amount of room that 16, even 16 millimeter prints require. Uh, when I bought the house we have in Leighton Buzzard, it's not in Leighton Buzzard, but it's near Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire in a little sleepy village, uh, Jackie, my wife, and I looked for a house which would accommodate a, a cinema. It always been a dream of mine to have my own cinema. Alfred Marks bought a house. Uh, in the top floor he turned into a cinema with tip-up seats, electric curtains, a little organ, and he even had a neon sign outside saying it's the Bijou Cinema, except it was spelled B-E, new word, J-E-W. <laughs> the Bijou Cinema. <laughs> Very Yiddish. Um, we, we're not quite as showy as that. We've got some nice comfortable seats and a screen that goes down from the ceiling and I can project from a projection booth. And uh, that is it, one of the great joys of, of my life. And uh, I must say, don't you think that the older films that you do see on, I think it's BBC Two, isn't it, on, the, on the weekend four, afternoons yeah. or Channel Four, I mean, they have a whole list of stars for a start, and they don't have these irritating gimmicks of nowadays. I'm sick to death of seeing the slow motion replay in every yes. damn film. And when it was in the first one, wasn't it Chariots of Fire? I think that sort of that they first came to prominence. They that. used it brilliantly. But, I, but I after think it was, that, you I think know, it was the Sporting Game, in fact, a long ago, uh, when Lindsay Anderson used it with. Uh, Richard Harris that they first employed that uh, brilliantly in a black and white movie. But I do agree with you. Today it isn't enough to have a good story and stars. That's not going to bring people into the cinema. You must have a massive piece of entertainment, a great big gimmick. You've got to have a Star Wars feeling about what you're doing, or the Ghostbusters, or the Gremlins, or the things that are coming to us at the moment, uh, or Steven Spielberg's huge blockbusters. It must be event cinema going. And what we see, as you say, are films of a star pack. They've got good stories, good things to tell us. And in the main, they carry with them, particularly from the early 30s, the most wonderful innocence, the most marvellous feeling of commitment to, to the entertainment, that this is what we're doing is good. And even if it isn't very good, you still feel the force of these people's absolute faith in what they're doing, and I find that charming. It's a storyline also that you can actually follow to yes. a bitter end. Yes, it's got know? a beginning, a middle and an end. That really is something, isn't <laughs> Instead it? of being blinded by, by science. Now... 30 years at the top, roughly, would that be a fair estimation, do you think, Bob, yourself? Gosh, yes, I suppose you're right. I, I was topping bills in, in, where are we, 1984? Yes, 1954, I had my own television series and I was topping bills, yes, 30 mm. years. Well, we have lost an awful lot of stars this yes, particular year. I mean, sad. Diana Dawes, Eric Morecambe, Tommy Cooper, James Mason, now Richard Burton, of course. Who's going to replace them? I'm not feeling so well myself. <laughs> <laughs> Have another glass of water, fast. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Sunday morning water. Uh, um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I had a talk with my manager, Peter Pritchard. He used to be on the panel of New Faces. And in those days, uh, the early 70s of New Faces, Peter would spot at least one potential star in every three or four shows. Now he admits that you don't see one in a year. There's no training ground for them, there's no nursery, and I think it's tragic uh, that we've lost the, the summer show, the little concert parties where people learn their trade. Arthur Askey, I first saw when I was seven years old, learning his trade in Shanklin on the Isle of Wight. And goodness knows the Isle of Man has provided a training ground for so many young performers to come here and entertain, learn to find out from welcoming audiences and holiday audiences just what will make them laugh mm. and what they should do and shouldn't do and how to move on a stage and how to get off for the laugh or how to finish on a song correctly. And I'm, it is very tragic uh, for the future of television 
that apart from the Cambridge footlights, all we're seeing coming out of the ailing and dying club life are stand-up comedians who think it's enough to use four-letter words and do drug-orientated comedy. Mm. The same thing's happening in America. I and yet, and yet, I mean, well, well, I do think that the public still must uh, have a lot of intelligence, really, and, and are quite uh, criterion at what, at what they, at what critical, or what they go along to look at, because James Last and Shirley Bassey can command sixteen pounds a ticket for a one-night show, say, in, in the in the Winter Gardens, the Opera House in Blackpool, a yes. year in advance. Yes. So, so what is it? I mean, what do you think that it is that is needed? nowadays to, to restore the balance in the theatre. There's no doubt that you're right. The public is most discerning. They know whether someone's got star appeal. They know immediately whether someone's a good actor. Uh, they don't they have to be told Alec Guinness is good by being told he's got a knighthood. Uh, but where are they going to come from? Somehow they arrive. Somehow uh, Liverpool's given the, the world so many good comedians. On the screen at the moment, who do we see? We see Gary Wilmot, that excellent young entertainer. Uh, we see a couple of other brilliant young men coming along who could easily shape up. Duncan Norvell has all the charm to become a star. Um, uh, Roy Jay has an original line of comedy. I still prefer to be optimistic, even though I say I don't know where the stars are coming from. I think they're coming. <laughs> well, time has certainly flown, as I expected it would, in the company of Bob Monkhouse. I did state at the top of the programme that it was with special pleasure that I introduced my very famous guest today. Now, as uh, listeners to In Conversation will have realised by now, I have met very many showbiz personality. Right. But I, I had an instinctive, intuitive, if you like, uh, feminine feeling today that we get on like a house on fire. Geraldine, I thank you, and if I ever get caught in a house on fire, I hope it's with you.